Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to episode two of the second series of Among the Ancients, a close readings podcast from the London Review of Books. I'm Thomas Jones, an editor at the LRB, and I'm joined by Emily Wilson, Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and celebrated translator of Homer and much else. Hello, Emily. Hi, Tom. So last time we talked about Hesiod, who, as far as we know, or as far as we can tell from his poems, probably lived in Boeotia around 700 BC. Today we're going to talk about the fables of Aesop, who, as far as we know, probably never existed at all, though that never stopped anyone writing about him in considerable detail. Of course, it may even have helped. There are no facts. You can say whatever you like. <laughs> you can make it up. One of, the, one of the earliest mentions of Aesop's name that we still have comes in the 5th century BC histories of Herodotus, which we'll be talking more about next time. But just for now, he, he mentions Aesop in passing, referring to him as Aesop the Fabulist, as if everyone would already know or should already know who that was. And according to Herodotus, Aesop was an enslaved man on the island of Samos in the 6th century BC. And we're talking about Aesop's fables now in this relatively early episode between Hesiod and Herodotus, as if these fables, stories, fabulae were written by Aesop on the island of Samos in the 6th century BC. Though, of course, they were not. (laughs) The Aesopic question, in a way, is even more difficult than the Hesiodic question or the much more famous Homeric question about how did we get these fables? What relationship might they have to any author or author function, to use the Foucauldian term? Aesop becomes, in the Greek and Roman traditions, a name for a type of fable. And of course, written is not a quality that one necessarily associates with the fable. It's sort of the ultimate folk storytelling. I mean, I thought it'd be useful to talk about Aesop before Herodotus specifically, because of course, Herodotus is doing something which in a way is close to writing fables. He really relies on the anecdotal and the fun little story that might have a moral or social or political point, and also the sort of close observation of how people might be different in different cultures. In a way, that's an Aesopic endeavor. So that question of who was Aesop, we have a very fantastical life of Aesop, which may be from, who knows, sometime in the first century AD or later, because there are many versions of it. The name Aesop, as you say, comes in Herodotus. The earliest extant, clearly written and very writerly fables we have are from the first century AD by the Roman fabulist Phaedrus. And he's the only one that we actually know anything about biographically. So I was thinking maybe we should have made this episode about Phaedrus rather than about Aesop. But in fact, that would be leaving out so much because, of course, Phaedrus did not make this up. This whole tradition one can trace far back, you know, far beyond the Greeks, right? There were Sumerian fables, there were Midrash fables, there were fables sort of all over the ancient world, these interlocking genres of proverbs, stories with some kind of point to them, cool things about animals and the funny things people do. I mean, some of these fables really are developments of proverbs, as well as, you know, all kinds of different things enfolded together. Should we talk a bit about the imaginary Aesop, the life of Aesop, because even though we have the so-called life of Aesop that we have was written 
probably in the first century AD. It obviously wasn't invented then, it's drawing on much older traditions, and there was already an idea in classical Athens about who Aesop was and the kind of person he was, that mentioned by Herodotus, but he's also, he's, isn't, he's referred to by Plato and by Aristotle and Aristophanes. And, and by Aristophanes as well, there's lots of bits of Aesopic fables in Aristophanes, because of course there's this affinity between comedy and the fable. I mean, I think that the Aesop romance which is called the Aesop Romance as much as the life of Aesop, because it's clearly analogous to the Alexander Romance. It's as much a, a novel or a work of comedy biography than actual biography. It sort of melds the figure of Aesop with the figure of the wise advisor who's smarter than everyone else around him, comes up with all these kinds of social critique. He's also, in a way, a prototype for the figure of the philosopher or Socrates, who, of course, is also the sort of bumbling, fool, ugly guy. And I think that the life of Aesop, the Aesop romance, is interesting for thinking about how do people in antiquity think of the genre of the fable. I mean, whether or not we think there really was an enslaved person called Aesop, the fable has this connotation of being a genre that could be claimed by enslaved people. It doesn't rely on literacy. It's the ultimate low genre. I know that you were surprised that, we, that I suggested we should have Aesop at all because Aesop so rarely comes on the canonical reading lists, even though in a way this body of literature is some of the most well-known and continuously engaged with element of ancient literature that exists. So I think it's interesting also just about canonicity, about, you know, does the slave get to speak and does the low genre get to be part of what reading the ancients is? I mean, some of the fables which Laura Gibbs includes in her collection and translation for Oxford, that the, the first ones sort of about him and they're tales of, of Athenian orators and complaining that people only want to listen to Aesop rather than listening to them. I mean, this idea that... <laughs> So this this apparent dichotomy between high and low literature, but so-called high literature uses fables and uses Aesop while appearing to sort of disown it. Yes. I mean, so both in those stories about politicians saying that they're the ones who teach serious things about life, but of course the Aesopic fables also present themselves very often as teaching something serious about life and sometimes even about politics. And as you say, also Aesopic fables crop up in quote-unquote serious literature or high literature. They come in Hesiod, which has both the Aesopic fable of the hawk and the nightingale, the Aesopic fable of the two roads, the easy road of being evil or the life of pleasure and the hard road of virtue. One could see Pandora's jar as a version of an Aesop fable, which comes up in, in the Aesopic collection in the Laura Gibbs translation in a different version, which doesn't have the idea that it's a woman who opens the jar, but it's basically the same story. And, and even in tragedy, I mean, I, I said fable has a close connection with comedy, that we have lots of Aesopic lines in Aristophanes. But in Aeschylus, we have the the story of the lion cub that seems so cute and you invite her into your house, but then in the end, it's a disaster. And that comes in the chorus of the Agamemnon as an analogy to what it was like to get married to Helen. And one could even sort of trace connections between the Iliad similes, the animal similes, and Aesop's fables. There isn't really a clear boundary between the fabulous and the high. It's just that you know, within the tradition, we're sort of supposed to think of these things as totally separate, and yet they aren't really. So I wonder if we maybe listen to one now, maybe one of the ones which features Aesop as a character. In Laura Gibbs' translation, it's called Aesop and the Bow, 
and it comes from Phaedrus. Fable 537, Aesop and the Bow When a certain man of Athens saw Aesop playing with marbles amidst the crowd of boys, he stood there and laughed at him as if Aesop were crazy. As soon as he realised what was going on, Aesop, who was an old man far more inclined to laugh at others than to be laughed at himself, took an unstrung bow and placed it in the middle of the road. Okay, you know it all, he said. Explain the meaning of what I just did. All the people gathered round. The man racked his brains for a long time, but he could not manage to answer Aesop's question. Eventually, he gave up. Having won this battle of wits, Aesop then explained, If you keep your bow tightly strung at all times, it will quickly break. But if you let it rest, it will be ready to use whenever you need it. In the same way, the mind must be given some amusement from time to time, so that you will find yourself able to think more clearly afterwards. I mean, there's the moral which is given with it, and you kind of think, well, maybe there are other morals as well. Although in this case, it does seem to be more or less the right one. It's kind of the idea... you. Th- you think these things are a bit ridiculous. They're children's games. They're playing with marbles. It's not. But he's saying, but actually, I am wiser than you. Actually, that's a serious point. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I also, I, I think that might be the only one in the ones we've planned to talk about, which is from Phaedrus. And so I think it's also just worth pointing out that the translation doesn't necessarily convey that the original is very artful Latin and much less wordy than the prose translation makes it sound. And there's sort of elegance about... Um, so, for instance, deiri saw potiusquam deiri dendus senex. It's a sort of nice, elegant line about how Aesop is the laugher, not the laughed at. And Phaedrus sort of manages to make that point in a sort of punchy way that makes you see through the poetic style as well as through the content that that he, as the fabulist, is also in control, just as Aesop is in control. And this is sort of playing around with the term that's translated as racked, where he's the person is twisted, torquens, so he's twisted like a bow, but he's twisted up too much all the time. So there's a sort of artfulness about that way of telling a fable, which isn't there in some of the retellings of the fables that we have in the collection. Thanks for listening to this extract from Among the Ancients 2, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episode and all our other close reading series, including series one of Among the Ancients, sign up to our close reading subscription at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.